This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. Hello and good afternoon to you. Back to work for some of you if you do work a nine to five. Plenty of you have still been busy this holiday period though, particularly if you're a bushfire volunteer. Another emergency level bushfire broke out yesterday afternoon. This one was in the Shire of Karoo near Lehman, about 280 odd kilometres north of Perth. Thankfully, it was dealt with pretty sharpish, but you'll hear what's gone on there very shortly. Also, on a positive note, Australia does love its big things. There's a big ram in Wagen, the big banana, or not quite so big banana in Carnarvon, and the big tin dogs in Darren as well. And a town in the Midwest is vying to bring home, or to become home rather, to another big thing. They're just fun. I'm on a farm, so we use them basically every day. Excited because it'll bring a lot of tourists to Kanama and they'll love to see it because it's a small town and lots of people are not really into Kanama. You'll find out what it is going to be home to Kanama. You'll find out after half past 12. But I'm wondering this afternoon, let me know on the text line 0448922604, what big thing should your town be home to? 0448922604, where do you live and what big thing should your town be celebrating? Send me a text this afternoon. I'd love to hear from you. 7 past 12. First up in some breaking news this afternoon, rail operations at Andrew Forrest's Fortescue Metals Group are on hold because of a derailment on its line. The company's keeping pretty tight-lipped about the situation, but some industry sources have told me as many as 50 loaded wagons derailed from the track on Saturday south of Port Hedland. Fortescue says its December exports weren't impacted, which given it happened on the second last day of the month might not be a huge surprise. But speaking to people locally, it has been questioned whether FMG has enough stockpiled to continue shipping after today. A spokesperson said the train line is expected to be up and running tomorrow. Now, thankfully, no one was injured in this derailment. And Fortescue says there's been no impact to members of the community either. An investigation is underway by the company to try and determine the cause of the de- derailment. And I've also been in touch with the Australian Transport Safety Bureau to find out whether it's investigating also. A spokesperson has just in the last couple of minutes come back to say that the investigation has been reported, sorry, the incident has been reported to the ATSB and it's currently gathering further information which would inform a decision about any potential investigation. So a derailment uh, from FMG on the rail line heading into Port Hedland and we'll keep you up to date with any information as that comes through. You're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. 
Volunteer firefighters right across WA remain on high alert at this time of year. Yesterday, a fire on the coast between Lehman and Greenhead. It's about 270-odd k's north of Perth in the Shire of Karoo. It ignited and escalated to emergency level really quickly. Guy Sim is the Karoo Shire president. He says local brigades, along with aerial support from DFUS, sorted out the blaze really quickly. You're with Michelle Stanley. For the- uh, well, the fire, yeah, is effectively uh, out. It's going to be monitored for the next day or two now. Yeah, it was a, uh, a very, very good effort yesterday. Uh, what, what could have been a very serious situation. How, how close did it come to the homes there in Lehman? They actually stopped at two and a half kilometres from Lehman, which is a very good effort. Um, it was travelling you know, very quickly. Probably, as you can imagine, with embers blowing, you don't want it to get too much closer than that. And what kind of bushland, uh, what are we talking about? What's the, the landscape um, where it was burning? So, so it's probably the best way to describe it is, is, is thick coastal scrub. So once it gets going, it does burn, yeah, very quickly. Uh, it moves moves through that that country very quickly. But we we were lucky; there was a very fast response. You know, you've got to take a hat off to the volunteer fire brigades. So for the Shire of Karoo, we had our own Lehman, Greenhead, Waradaji, and the um, the one from the town of Karoo. There, we had backup from volunteers in Durian Bay. There were a number of parks and wildlife fire vehicles there, as well as backup from, I think, career firefighters from Dongara and Geraldton, where there might have been some volunteers. What was the mood of the community yesterday? I think they were early on, they were very concerned. The fire started a bit further of, um, north of Greenhead than was previously indicated. In that area, we've got the Milligan Island Camping Nodes, which is a popular eco-camping area, so that had to be evacuated. I hasten to point out to people that have booked and or had to were evacuated yesterday, that will reopen today, and the fire didn't get anywhere near to it. Mm-hmm. But the, the town of Lehman, yeah, they were, they were very concerned, but I think they realised there was such a big effort, they were pretty confident. Probably the, the clincher was the, uh, the big C-130 aircraft that came out. There was a large amount of area support, so we had some um, helicopters but the big C-130 um, tanker uh, really knocked it on its head. So The big bird came out to, to drop some water on it. Yeah, so it just goes to show with uh, you know, our, our um, fire controller, uh, Kelvin Bean, did an excellent job, and with a backup of you know, all the agencies working together and the volunteers, you get a really good result quite quickly. Take my hat off to all of them. Yeah, really good outcome there. That's Karooshai President Guy Sim, who was speaking this morning with Dustin Skipworth. The Indian Ocean Drive, it reopened this morning with a 60 kilometre per hour speed restriction. So make sure you're, you're taking care and driving uh, to those conditions along Indian Ocean Drive. 12 past 12. Now, yesterday on the Country Hour, we were chatting about just how dry it's been across the north in particular. And the wet season for the Pilbara and the Kimberley, well, it hasn't really eventuated yet. In the central Kimberley, Calyeda Station has recorded just 10 millimetres this wet season, which is well under their quarterly average for this time of year. Camille McClymont runs the station. She says they're not the only ones in the Kimberley who are feeling the pinch of the dry wet. Uh, pretty pretty shocking to, to start with. Like we haven't had 
I think we've had 10 meals so far, um, which is pretty rare. Normally we do, we do get a bit of rain in December, but, you know, we've still got January, February. So hopefully it's coming. We just need like a good system to come through um, because, you know, like the odd storm isn't enough to keep us going. We need to have, we need to have big rainfall. It just, it just means that our costs have increased because we're having to supplement the cows when normally, you know, at this time of year, we wouldn't have to, but um, like my husband for the rest of the week, he's going to be doing lick runs, taking lick out to the cattle. Normally we wouldn't have to do that. Um, so it, it just means that we have to, our, our costs increase because we're, you know, we're having to deal with, with that. Um, but everyone in the Kimberley is in the same boat. Like no one's really had much rain. We're all just fingers crossed that it comes soon. It's Camille McClymont from Calyeda Station. It's southwest of Fitzroy Crossing in the central Kimberley. You'll hear more from Camille tomorrow on the program as well, just reflecting on one year on from the Fitzroy Valley floods. But looking at some of the rainfall figures across the Kimberley for the past three months, I can see that Theta and Nicholson stations are about the only two that have recorded more than the average totals. Liveringa Station uh, has had just 17 millimetres down from from the average of 165. Larawa is sitting at 59 down from 167. And Lejeune, just northeast of Kununurra, 172 millimetres, which is down from an average of 293 at this time. And uh, I know it's the same situation or potentially much worse in the Gascoigne and Pilbara. And we will continue to talk about this week. But you might have heard yesterday the Bureau of Meteorology told us that this delayed wet season in Western Australia actually comes down to the monsoon in the Territory, or should I say the lack of monsoon in the top end. Brad Jackson is a long-range forecaster with the Weather Bureau, and this morning he said the monsoon could still be a few weeks away. We're expecting a sort of a delayed start to the monsoonal season, um, thanks to climate drivers of El Nino and, and a little bit to do with the positive Indian Ocean Dipole as well. Um, we're looking at uh, still maybe not in the coming week we'll see the monsoon sort of come down, even though there will be showers and thunderstorms in and around sort of the Darwin area and the northern top, top end of the Northern Territory. Um, but we're, you know, we've got the Madden-Julian Oscillation sort of sweeping back over the Maritime Continent and you know, into the Western Pacific sort of mid to late Jan. So we might see some more activity at that particular point. Okay, mid to late Jan, which was kind of your forecast when we spoke to you about a month ago. Although there was that moment where Cyclone Jasper could have come into the Northern Territory. Well, absolutely, and that may have changed things up a fair bit, but, you know, with most tropical cyclones, they're, they're pretty pretty hard to sort of predict and they can influence, in, you know, in a random kind of way, um, which then can sort of skew things a bit. But at this point, there's the tropical cyclone outlook for the Northern Territory is pretty low at the moment for the next seven days. Um, and we're looking, as I said, probably about mid-January um, is, is more likely for the monsoon sort of arrival at this point. But, um, yeah, we just have to wait and see as we get a bit closer, see if it's likely to appear. I don't suppose you've got in front of you there the latest first monsoonal burst of the season that the Territory's experienced? I don't have that in front of me right at the moment, Matt, oh. um, but it's something that yeah, we can look into a bit further for you. Because middle of Jan would be getting definitely at the later end. 
Well, absolutely. It, it is definitely the later end, though, and I do agree. I think, you know, the average arrival of the monsoon is around Christmas time. Um, so, yeah, even now we are delayed and it's likely to sort of just, just uh, stay delayed just a little bit longer. And over in the West, the Kimberley in particular hasn't even had a start to the wet season, it seems. What's driving that? Um over in the Kimberley in the West Australia, the, the next three months is also looking a bit below average as well. They're being sort of influenced a bit by the positive Indian Ocean dipole sort of process in the Indian Ocean. And so that's actually reducing their chances of sort of getting average rainfall at this particular point. They've had a late start to their, their northern wet season um, and the northern rainfall onset hasn't been achieved in a couple of areas in in sort of the Kimberley region. So we're still waiting a bit for that to come. The positive Indian Ocean Dipole, though, will break down when the monsoon does actually arrive. So it'll return to neutral, which then should hopefully maybe sort of free up a bit of that rainfall. Okay, so it sounds like everyone needs to have their fingers crossed for sort of maybe 7 to 14 days' time. Well, very, very possibly. I think across northern Australia, um, you know, apart from the... the uh, something like Tropical Cyclone Jasper coming through, like an event of that kind of nature, um, you know, that will bring heavy rainfall, as we found in the, in the Cairns sort of area in, in northern Queensland. But across the tropics at the moment, yeah, we are still waiting for that, that arrival, the arrival of that monsoon. That's Bureau of Meteorology Long Range Forecaster Brad Jackson. He was chatting with Matt Brand this morning. And we will look a bit closer at the situation in the Gascoigne later this week because things are particularly dry there. We've been talking about it and we'll get a wrap-up of what 2023 looked like weather-wise, rainfall-wise in particular. Um, that coming later this week, of course, as well, you'll get a full wrap of WA's weather for this week just after half past. 12 this afternoon. But talking about dry conditions, a Queensland-based rural charity is hoping to expand its footprint in WA to support farmers in need. Drought Angels provides financial assistance to primary producers who have struggled through natural disasters like drought, fire and flood. It has a huge presence in the east and a couple of producers are on its books in the southwest of WA, also one or two in the Murchison region. But director Jenny Gailey says she'd like to extend that helping hand to farmers right across WA. Wherever there's a disaster in Australia, we want to be able to let our farmers know that we're here for them. Um, so some of those people were impacted by some of the fires that you had over there um, and the ones down south. Um, you know, I think that was during um, a particularly dry period when they reached out to us. Um, and we would love to see more of our farmers over there reach out to us. And, um, you know, just we'll just let them know that we're there. So what exactly does Drought Angels do? What, what are you there? What service and, and um, what do you offer farmers in need across Australia? So we offer financial support. Uh, we also provide uh, food hampers and care packs, which are like your um, cleaning products, uh items that you generally drop off the list when uh, funds are tight, uh, laundry detergent, uh, you know, other cleaning products, something as simple as fly spray, um, you know, glad wrap, those types of things. Um, and then we move into more of the other items that we can help people with. It could be school shoes for their kids, work boots, 
Um, it could be um, slabs of water. It could be the, the range that we have is amazing. Um, so we speak to each of our families individually and we find out the best way to support them. And that's why we have such a personalised service. Aussies are so generous. They really, really are. And uh, when the chips are down, we certainly know how to get behind our, our people and support them. And it's not just financial support as well. How, how do you support people who might be going through a, a really tricky time mentally? Because these natural disasters, while they, they definitely hit the hip pocket, they, they also can really impact your mental health. Oh, absolutely. And uh, one of the other things that we've found is that most of our farming families can, they can generally cope with, you know, maybe a drought or a flood or something like that. But there's usually multiple um, different things going on in their lives. Uh, they could be battling, um, you know, an illness, uh, cancer or um, a vehicle accident. So what we then do is we provide our angel on the phone service and they do a wellbeing check-in and just for a chat. Um, we have mental health first aid training. Um, that's a almost like a mandatory thing that we all do here um, so that we can have conversations with our families um, and help refer them on to other, whether it's the GP, other mental health services, um, just to help them get on track because sometimes there's just so much going on in your life that the expression, you can't see the forest for the trees. They just, they just need a little bit of a, a bit of a guidance over to the right area and just taking one step at a time and we'll walk beside them um, and help them, you know, along that pathway until they, you know, they come out of the forest and can really get things back on track and, and, you know, deal with it them, you know, themselves because we know that they can. It's in Western Australia because you don't have much of a footprint. It's often not known of you know the services you you provide. It's almost mm. the chicken and the egg of trying to let people know you're there, but then also being here at the same time. So, I um, what would you like to see in Western Australia in terms of I don't know that sort of support and that sort of um, presence from drought angels over here. Yeah. Uh, so our, our fan founder, um, Natasha Johnston, her dream has always been to have a angel in every state. Um, and, you know, if we, you know, and, and we now have someone in Queensland, uh, we've just received funding for uh, Victoria. You know, if we, we're just striving towards that goal um, and that vision and that dream so that it doesn't matter where you are, um, you know, we, we're such a huge country, um, so it doesn't matter where you are, that there's an angel nearby that can, you know, drop in for that cuppa and, uh, and that chat and that listening ear, that is, that's always been our dream. So, and we will never give up on that. <laughs> That's Jenny Gailey. She's one of the directors of the rural charity Drought Angels. They're based in Queensland, have quite the presence on the East Coast, but are hoping to expand their footprint further into Western Australia. If you're in need or maybe you know someone who could do with a helping hand, whether it be financial, uh, some products that they also supply, or even just someone to chat to, you can call Drought Angels. Grab a pen, I'll give you the number in a minute. Uh, you can also go to the website droughtangels.org.au 
angels.org.au or just search Drought Angels. You should be able to find that. Uh, but the phone number 0746627371. That number for Drought Angels 0746627371. And if you are in need of some extra support, there is also Lifeline on 13 11 14. The WA Country Hour with Michelle Stanley on ABC Radio WA. 25 past 12. Now, many of you will have celebrated with a few wines on New Year's Eve, but will grape growers and winemakers be celebrating this year's vintage? Catherine Brown is from the Brown Family Wine Group, best known for producing Brown Brothers wines. She's optimistic about this year's harvest and vintage and says it should kick off next month. Brown Brothers or the greater company Brown Family Wine Group have vineyards um, across Victoria, so like Heathcote, King Valley, Murray Valley, and then also down in Tasmania. So from a Victorian perspective, we're looking really optimistic for the 2024 harvest. Uh, Coming off last year, which was uh, quite wet, we had quite a lot of disease pressure. Um, We've really seen a a fantastic spring, slightly early bud burst, uh, which will lead to probably harvest kicking off uh, around mid-February, which is sort of on average spot on in timing. So hopefully the weather keeps being kind to us and um, we see that grapefruit coming through. And so you mentioned that there was a wet year last year. Have there been any conditions this year affecting production? And what's the um, the expected quality and, and volume this year? So everything looks really positive for this year. Um, that warm spring was just absolutely fantastic. It was just what the vines needed. Great vines do sort of have a bit of a, a hangover if they've had a tough year the year before. Uh, so yields are a little bit down just because the vines are recovering from you know, that the wet year that we had last year. Yields are looking good though. Um, because they are a little bit down, it actually means high quality. Uh, the vine can really focus on the grapes it's got and really put its effort into sort of like the maturing of that fruit. Yeah, we've really only got sort of a positive positive way to look at 2024, which is pretty good when you consider that we're farmers. It's nice to start with a, a positive outlook and hopefully it continues that direction. And so we've just come through the festive season. What were consumers buying for uh, the Christmas and, and New Year period? We're seeing an amazing um, trend happening in sparkling white, um, especially Prosecco. There's huge growth in um, that sparkling white Prosecco category. And we saw that flowing all the way through the festive season uh, last year, um, like so the year before, 2022, and also this 2023, 2024 side of things. Um, And we see that's really occasion-based. People are more sort of, you know, the casual entertaining, the daytime entertaining, the barbecues. Um, and that sort of sparkling white is, is really coming out. Um, something we're also seeing a lot of um, a huge trend in is uh, zero wine, so zero alcohol wine. We currently have a Moscato and a Prosecco in zero alcohol. The sales increase has just been amazing in that over this festive period. So really seeing people like looking for that sort of healthier option as well. Yeah, we're hearing a lot about the zero and low alcohol markets. Uh, In terms of 2024 uh, consumer trends, um, what can we expect this year in terms of um, upcoming varieties or or, or growing popularity? Yeah, we're really seeing um, a bit of a a groundswell in, in chilled reds. We have an amazing grape variety that we developed with the CSIRO decades ago called Tarango. Um, Tarango was quite popular in the 80s and grows up um, sort of in the warmer regions around Swan Hill, Murray Valley sort of area. This is a, a great variety that makes, it sort of 
essentially a rosé, but uh, but sort of um, more bold in style, sort of sort of sitting between that dry red and a rosé. But we chill it, and we're really seeing a trend coming through of sort of like that that easy drinking red wine for sort of like that barbecue occasion. So it'll be interesting to to keep an eye out for you know varieties like. Tarango, as I mentioned, um, Gamay also fits into that chilled red, easy drinking red. And there's some other um, wineries out there working with some Mediterranean varieties that really fit into that category as well. What does a Gamay taste like? Uh, the Gamay, it sort of sits on a, a Pinot Noir spectrum. It's sort of got that nice sort of cherry, um, juicy red fruits. And because it doesn't have very high tannins, you can actually chill it down and, and make some really lovely drink over these summer months. And so what would you be hoping for from 2024 for, uh, for your wine business, but also for the industry? What are some New Year's resolutions that you might have for this year? Looking quite broadly in terms of New Year's resolutions for the wine industry, um, I think we've all got our fingers and toes crossed that the Chinese um, tariffs will be lifted. Um, we're looking in our plan, we're looking around sort of March, April. Uh, we're sort of like hopefully to be able to jump over and get in, into that market physically in May. There's um, some really exciting sort of trade shows and that sort of thing happening throughout Asia in May. And I really feel that that's going to reinvigorate the Australian wine industry that has been so hurt from those tariffs that have been put on over the past few years. And also um, just getting consumers excited uh, about the wine industry again. We are seeing sort of like this trend going towards healthier lifestyles and, and a bit of negative negative commentary around alcohol. But really it's all about this sort of like engagement of people into the wine occasion whether it is sort of like you know the traditional wine or the zero wine that we're working with so um yeah really optimistic for 2024 it's Catherine brown from the brown family wine group speaking there with fiona broom about this year's vintage in victoria lower yields hoping for some good quality and interesting to hear that non-alcohol or zero alcohol wine also becoming quite popular uh, i have given well, not their brand but i've given some of the zero alcohol wines a try they don't quite hit the same way but at least you can you can have a drink and you can still drive that's always a positive isn't it it's half past 12 on the country hour michelle stanley with you this afternoon i do hope you're well wherever i find you across the state if you'd like to get in touch you can send a text on zero double four eight nine double two six zero four no news headlines today but let's head to the bureau of meteorology for a wrap of the weather around the state caroline crow is with you this afternoon caroline what's going on in the southwest land division today Today. Yeah, so at the moment uh, we've got a dominant high pressure system south of the state and it's uh, going to strengthen over the next couple of days and really maintain a persistent southeasterly to easterly airstream, uh, Michelle. So at the moment we have been getting, uh, well there's quite a bit of cloud over a good part of the southwest land division at the moment and we're a bit of moisture in it as well so it's bringing some showers to those southern districts. And in that southeasterly airstream, it's going to continue over the next couple of days as well. So sort of all the way from Albany through to the Esperance area and even adjacent inland parts are seeing showers. Yeah, I saw um, Bremer Bay, I think, had 28 millimetres. And I wondered whether that was a typo, but but that is legit that they are getting as much as almost 30 mils. Yeah, so it will be looked into, uh, the 28 mils, but given that there's been consistent showers in the area um, at the moment, uh, it does look as though uh, it is a possibility having that amount of rainfall. Um, it's just been continuous uh, over the sort of, yeah, those southern districts. And it's a decent southeasterly as well, and it, it's going to be, it's being maintained um, as well, Michelle. So, so, yeah, so, so what's so, likely to happen down there for the next few days? 
Coming into the next few days, uh, we're looking at the highs going to build and become a bit stronger. Uh, so we're going to look at those southeasterly winds being uh, pretty fresh and it's going to get pretty windy through those uh, all of the southwest land division really and we're going to see uh, pretty gusty winds as well particularly about the scarp um, coming into Wednesday and Thursday morning which are going to be the windiest days for the southwest land division. From a gust perspective about the scarp we could see uh, 65 70 kilometres per hour tomorrow morning and even getting up potentially to 75 kilometres per hour Thursday morning. In that southeasterly airstream as I mentioned we're going to continue to see uh, showers move over the um, Southern coastal districts coming into tomorrow along uh, sort of the Esperance coast uh, around to Albany we could see falls about 0.5 to about 3 millimetres and it'll just get sort of maybe less than uh, 0.5 mil as you get further inland and it's going to be similar coming into Thursday. Coming into Friday we start seeing the trough deepen a bit more down the west coast so we're going to start seeing the winds tend a little bit more easterly and then maybe a touch more northeasterly. so we'll see a gradual decrease in those showers on Friday and coming into Saturday because by Saturday the winds are generally a bit more easterly so you're not getting the the full southeasterly of the showers coming over the coast. So that's sort of the southern bit for sort of central and northern parts of the southwest land division. Uh, cloudy today, uh, still chance of getting a um, thunderstorm through eastern parts of the southwest land division. So that's from about Meriden coming around to uh, Ravensthorpe and through to Esperance and that will gradually contract east as the day progresses and then coming in to uh, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, uh, we'll see generally more clearing conditions and or sunny conditions uh, through northern parts. No weather expected through those central and northern parts coming into Thursday, Friday and Saturday. And with that trough deepening, we'll also see some warming temperatures. But the warming temperatures is really confined to the West Coast this time, Michelle. And we've actually got quite below average temperatures for a good part of the Southwest Land Division at the moment. I mean, I think for a few weeks we've been talking about all these above average temperatures, but we're actually sitting a little bit more below temperatures away from the West Coast. Well, that might, might be a nice change for some people, but I reckon I know where the above average temperatures are sitting and it's where I am in the Pilbara because it has been very hot. And Angeline Prasad mentioned yesterday a couple of records, December and annual records have been broken around Robin and, and Marble Bar over the weekend. Um, and it sounds as though that, that heat is likely to continue up here. Yeah, that's right. And as you mentioned, it is very warm up there. Uh, and you mentioned those couple of records, so I won't go into them at the moment. Um, but up north, we are still uh, expecting above average temperatures to continue. Uh, most of them are sort of through the peak area of the above average temperatures, sitting about four to eight degrees above average is through those western parts of the Kimberley and eastern parts of the Pilbara. Uh, and sort of in, into the inland parts. Uh, coming into today, to give a couple of examples, Marble Bar sitting at 46 degrees, Telfer 44, um, getting towards Roeburn, which was one of the places that had a record uh, on, I think it was the New Year's Eve, uh, got to over 49 degrees, is looking at 32 today. So there has been a little bit of a decrease uh, in temperatures, but given the, the longevity of it, it would still seem pretty hot up there. And those overnight temperatures and both combined, uh, there is that continuation of the heatwave warning um, through those northern parts, albeit it is gradually decreasing a little bit uh, over the next couple of days uh, from a temperature perspective. From a weather perspective over northern and east 
eastern parts, Michelle. Uh, showers and thunderstorms continuing through the Kimberley, uh, right down through the interior, down to the Eucla. One thing with the thunderstorms is that the ones through the Kimberley and um, through sort of further south as well, uh, it looks like they're going to be a bit more of a mix of wet and dry thunderstorms. Uh, we have consistently been saying, I think, over the last few weeks as well, a lot of dry thunderstorms. Whereas at the moment, it looks as though some of those thunderstorms have a bit of rainfall with them. So that's the, the eastern part, thunderstorms extending into uh, parts of the gold fields and into parts of the Gascoigne as well, uh, coming into Wednesday, Thursday and Friday uh, as well, Michelle. And yeah, bring that rain on for the, for, um, for those, particularly the the pastoral areas and we were hearing earlier as well that the monsoon has been delayed up in the territory and that sort of delayed the wet season for a lot of people in the Pilbara is there anything you can any kind of glimmer of hope you can give us Caroline without uh, any warning um, for rainfall in the north of the state is there anything significant that you can see so my understanding is that uh, the monsoon start is looking about mid-January so potentially still a couple of weeks away, and that looks so it's going to coincide with what we call um, one of one of the features, the Madden Julian Oscillation, coming into our area, which is an area of cloudiness um, through our area. And when you get that cloudiness through uh, the tropical areas, uh, potentially you get more enhanced rainfall and thunderstorms. So at the moment, it's I think we're looking at the middle part of January potentially for uh, the monsoon onset um, at this point in time. And what about the northwest coast? Sort of you know the, the west. Pilbara down into the Gascoigne. Is there anything anything doing around there? Yeah, so at the moment uh, there's nothing on sort of the outlook uh, regarding uh, those areas there. It's still looking sort of uh, above average temperatures and warmer um, and uh, not too much weather around. And from a tropical cyclone perspective as well, things are looking on the quiet side for the short term. Which isn't bad for the communities, but I know the pastoralists would be um, pretty happy for some cyclonic weather. Um, but we'll we'll keep our fingers crossed for some rainfall anyway. Um, Caroline, what about warnings today? You mentioned the the severe or the the heatwave warning in the north. Yep, so there's that severe heatwave warning and that's for Kimberley, Pilbara and the North Interior Districts. Uh, there is also a fire weather warning for the Burrup and also coming into the next couple of days uh, in the lower southwest area or the southwest of the state in the southwest land division, we might see some elevated fire dangers coming into the next couple of days just with that enhancement of the uh, wind. So just watch out for uh, that one there for those areas. And also a uh, coastal wind warning um, around the uh, west coast and southwest corner for the next couple of days excellent caroline thanks for your time this afternoon cheers michelle and looking at some of that rainfall that we have had in the 24 hours to nine o'clock this morning um, that is kicking off in the north the only places of interest were really in the kimberley fitzroy crossing had 18 millimeters in the eucla air received 30 and red rocks point had 10 mils in the southwest land division a few mils here and there in the southwest manjamup and walpole forestry had four in the southern coastal region albany had two over two days and the airport had sorry had eight over two days and the airport had eight millimetres in the last 24 hours. Bremer Bay, I mentioned with Caroline, Bremer Bay, 28 millimetres. And there's a text in from Helen to say they were in Bremer last night and it rained a lot. So 28 mils recorded in Bremer Bay, but that will be looked into to make sure it's legit and maybe not someone having a few too many down at the pub. Uh, in Denbarker, 8 millimetres. Hopeton, 7. Hopeton North had 5. Jacob, 10. Munglin up 
Narakup West had five. Narakup West had 11 mils over two days and Nyrilup had five mils over two days. ABC Radio, fire ban information. Due to the risk of a fire, a total fire ban has been issued for today. That's Tuesday the 2nd of January for the... Karatha local government area in the Pilbara. During a total fire ban, you must not light fires for cooking or camping. You can't carry out hot work such as grinding, welding, soldering or gas cutting. And you can't go off-road. You can't go go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive or a quad bike. So no no off-roading in the city of Karatha for today. Now, it's your responsibility to check with your shire if they have issued a harvest and vehicle movement ban. So best to check with your shire on that. But just repeating, there is a total fire ban in place for the Pilbara. That's in the shire of the city of Karatha for today, Tuesday, the 2nd of January. There is more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban and also a map of the areas affected on the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au. On ABC Radio WA, you're with Michelle Stanley for the WA Country Hour. 19 to 1. What better way to get your town on the map than to make it home to one of Australia's Big things. From the big banana in Coffs Harbour to the golden guitar at Tamworth and soon to be a towering tractor in the WA town of Carnamar. Alice Angeloni has this report. In a metal workshop in Geraldton, Western Australia, Xavier Sequeira and the team at Diab Engineering are working on a unique project. This is roughly the, the area that they're working in. This is our sheet metal area. They're building a replica of WA's first locally manufactured tractor, the Chamberlain 40K. But this one will be five times the size of the original. Overall, we're dealing with a a tractor. When it's completely built, it's going to be just over 17 metres long, just over nine and a half metres wide at the widest point, and 11 metres high. Xavier says the biggest challenge will be the logistics of transporting the tractor 180 kilometres from Geraldton to its new home in Carnamar. We most likely will bolt it all together and assemble it somewhere in the shop and make sure it fits before we uh, transport it down to to Karnama. Xavier says he's never worked on a project like this. Not at this scale, no. <laughs> this is kind of unique. Karnama farmer Brendan Husler has been leading the big tractor project on the ground. He shows me through the town's vintage tractor museum. Brendan says the big tractor will pay homage to the town's rural roots. These tractors were integral in clearing and developing huge tracts of WA's agricultural land. So without these, the, yeah, our, lands, well, our landscape wouldn't look the same. Probably, no, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> probably look better because there'd be more trees left, but you're going to edit this, aren't you? <laughs> Karnama is built on the back of the cropping industry. The sound of wheat rustles in the breeze and extends as far as the eye can see. 
WA's Vintage Tractor and Machinery Association, first mooted the big tractor idea. Carnema jumped in after another town dropped out. It ties in perfectly with the Chamberlain John Deere Museum and then having the giant replica here as well, so people can come and look at the giant replica, learn a bit about the history of agriculture and engineering and tractors, and then come and check out a hundred restored. A lot of, yeah, just about every farmer's owned several Chamberlains. He says they have high hopes the big tractor will also benefit their local economy. Everyone's pretty excited. Yeah, they have something to draw people to Carnamar, make it a destination instead of just a stopover. So yeah, hopefully it'll create a few jobs. It'll definitely increase the vibrancy of the town. Yeah, just getting more people in. Every, every business will benefit. And yeah, the whole region as well. Get more people into the region and they'll spend more time looking around other towns as well. The kids in Kanama think the tractor's a good idea too. I'm just excited to see when it's fully built and how big it is because I work on a farm and we have tractors on our farm so I'm going to see if it's close, like, related to it or not. I'm excited because it's going to be bigger than a real tractor and I'm on a farm so that's exciting. They're just fun. I'm on a farm so we use them basically every day. excited because it'll bring a lot of tourists to Kanama and they'll love to see it because it's a small town and lots of people are not really into Kanawha and it's isolated apparently. Alice Angeloni with that report. Preparing for the big tractor in the town of Kanawha. I can't wait to see it. Quarter to one. To celebrate 40 years of the land care movement in Western Australia, 12 land care champions have been inducted into the inaugural WA Land Carers Hall of Fame. They include names from across the state, including Wadjuri Noongar man Doc Reynolds, who spent more than four decades caring for country in the state's southeast. He says he's honoured to receive an award that recognises the cultural land practice Practices, which he's hoping will be passed on to future generations. I was very shocked to be re- to, to receive this award, you know, because you don't, well, you know, on this stage, you, you don't go out to receive the award, and then maybe you might have won a, just a recognition for a thing, but being in the inaugural uh, amongst the uh, very elite um, land carers across Western Australia was a pretty humbling experience. And as you say, there were some um, some very recognisable names on that list um, from right around, especially regional WA as well. Um, I suppose to, to hear some of those names... Are you glad that that those people? I know you said you do you don't do it for recognition. Oh, oh, oh yeah, well look, you know we 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 crossed paths over the years, you know, in, in our in our various uh, roles that I did. Obviously, I was more involved in cultural heritage, and uh, protecting, and because um, cultural heritage use your values very uh, tie up with the ecological values of areas. And, uh, and of course, we cross paths, you know, right across the board, I mean, through the, whether they're through the old script, which is now South Coast NRM, or CALM, as it was back in those days. Now it, you know, it has successive names to where it is today. So you've dealt with a lot of people. And sadly, I would say there was a lot of people that, you know, would have... Um, could have made the uh, inaugural uh, list, but unfortunately, I suppose they had to draw the line somewhere, and I was humbled to be just one of those few that was the inaugural inductee. So, what is it about land care that you value so deeply? What word does it mean so much to you? 
Well, from a cultural perspective, we as Aboriginal people, we don't own the land. We only borrow it from our grandchildren. So what our aim is to try and uh, look after the country as our elders have looked after because you've got to remember that our elders set all the benchmarks to where we are today. So anything that's measured in across the, across Australia today, the benchmark came from our elders. So what we are trying to do in a very challenging uh, environment, we are trying to restore the old ways to try and you know, to help correct a lot of stuff that is happening across the across the botanical landscape, across the land. You know, now we're working more on the islands and the seas. That is a whole lot of impacts that you know needs to be fixed, for a better word. To for and you know, I'm glad I've just been a part of that and leading in that, especially from the Aboriginal perspective in uh, in the last 30, 35 years. You mentioned this is something you've been doing for many decades, Doc. So is it harder or easier now? Well, unfortunately, when you start dealing today, the red tape that one has to jump over and what have you, back in the days when we were doing stuff in the early days, it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission because you knew that there was a lot of hoops and hoodles to go through. But today... You know, you've got to do something, you know, it's this permit, you've got to get to do this thing. And, you know, you sit down and think, all we want to do is pull that weed out. But there's a whole lot of stuff that you have to do to get into that. And, and it's crazy, but again, it's something that we have to, to go through. But if they can just sort of get rid of a lot of that and allow people that work on the ground, on the ground, you know, all the time, they can actually make these calls, not somebody sitting in a, in a box office in, uh, in the city and making decisions in a, in a house on the hill. When it comes to land care, what do you feel is your, your greatest achievement over, over those last decades? Well, obviously, it's caring for all of the cultural value sites across. And, and, um, and of course, when we do the cultural values and, and the areas of cultural significance, they normally come alongside of um, along, uh, very areas of very econo- ecological importance. And, you know, the Kepwari wetlands is one that we can see that we've been very heavily involved with over the years. And the other you know, major one which, which was quite important was um, out at uh, Point Culver, you know, where the cliffs start, out at the edge of the Great Australian Bight. You know, the areas were getting smashed. There was tracks going all the way to get up to the top of the escarpment. So we approached a big mining company in Kalgoorlie and they gave us all their old conveyor belting, which allowed us to run it all the way down the hill. So now instead of cars going all which ways it led, they were able to drive up and down the, the escarpment through sandy dunes. And when you're doing that, there's a whole lot of other stuff you're having, you know, cleaning, taking away rubbish, um, you know, rubbish that's been discarded over from passing ships. And, uh, yeah, so the, no, those are just some of the things that we've done while I've been involved in over the years. That's Wadjuri Noongar man and cultural advisor Doc Reynolds who was speaking with Tara DeLangraft uh, about his induction into the inaugural WA Land Carers Hall of Fame. So it recognises those individuals who have contributed to a lifetime of dedication through action, leadership, research, advocacy, policy, publication and persistent hard work with a continual focus and commitment to community. The inaugural WA Land Carers Hall of Fame in inductees are Doc Reynolds as you've heard, Rex Edmondson, Colma Keating, Jill Richardson, Rachel Seawitt, Patricia Hart, Jan Starr, Ted Rowley and posthumous awards to Jos Chatfield, Don Stanley, Clive Malcolm and John Collette. So well done and thank you to everyone who has been um, making such an incredible effort um, with Landcare over the last 
couple of decades. Nine to one. Before we get into the next story, I do want to remind you that things will be a little bit different on the country hour tomorrow because the cricket is back. It's taking over Australia versus Pakistan at the SCG. If you're keen to listen to the Country Hour tomorrow, I'll be here from 12 as usual, but it won't be on the wireless. You'll have to listen on the digital stream. So you can do that online or via the ABC Listen app. Basically, go online, search for your local station. So for me, I just search ABC Pilbara Listen and then it should pop up. If you want to listen back after the show, You can do that every day after one o'clock. Just search WA Country Hour online and on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts, you can access the show. And if you are on the wireless, there will be a short Country Hour program during the tea break at the cricket. So usually between about 12.30 and one o'clock. So hopefully you do get a little bit of a taste of the Country Hour tomorrow afternoon. Keep moving on though. 2023 delivered some interesting trends in the food and beverage industry. You heard earlier, non-alcoholic wine and beer sales, they surged. Smash burger tacos became a hit. And the world was introduced to Pringles and Caviar. The good people at Pringles have teamed up with the good people at the Caviar Company for a collaboration known as the Crisps and Caviar Collection. The idea was inspired by... A TikTok trend which showed users adding a dollop of caviar on Pringles. That cannot be a good thing, being inspired by a TikTok trend, but there you go. Um, but what should you expect in 2024 when it comes to food? Well, Toby Hunter is a food futurist and he took Matt Brand through some of the trends and some of the things that are set to influence the global food industry. And he kicked off by looking at the role AI, artificial intelligence, is starting to play in the food industry. I think that um, generative AI is going to have a massive effect on the food industry and on consumers as well. I think certainly from the food industry point of view, they're going to benefit like all companies, whether they make widgets or whatever in supply chain and everything else. But really for food industry, it's going to be generating novel flavors and novel products that we've never seen before. Can you explain that further? How does AI create flavors that we've never tasted before? Well, the big thing with generative AI compared to what we call traditional AI, which is, you know, data science and where they have all big tables of data and you ask a question and it pulls it from the data, is that generative AI can look at the data it's trained on and produce things that have never been seen before. And I mean, the, an image is a good example, right? If you want an image of an astronaut riding a unicorn with a pizza in one hand and a mobile phone in the other, mm. it will give you five different options, right? Now, that image has probably never existed on the planet before, but it created that image. So it's the same thing with flavours. It'll be able to take data from consumers, what they like, what they don't like, look at all the ingredients, thousands of ingredients that are available, and bring together a combination of ingredients that will be something that's never been seen before. Are there companies doing this already? A lot of companies are looking at it. The problem we've got with Gen AI at the moment, as we know, is it tends to do what they call hallucinate. It produces things that are actually not right, that it made up. So companies are rightly a bit... Um, you know, reticent to go, yep, that looks so fantastic, let's just believe the AI. But they are now looking at generative AI 
with human oversight, which is definitely what you need at the moment. Now, in 10 years' time, maybe it'll be 99% correct and the humans will barely have to look at it. But at the moment, human being has to get involved in the whole thing, Matt, to make sure that it's not hallucinating. Can we talk about a breakthrough in 2023 of food being made seemingly from thin air? Tell us about what Solar Foods did. Oh, look, that's a fascinating company. Now, what they do is they have some patented machinery and they suck air into their patented machine. They separate out the moisture, the carbon dioxide and the nitrogen, and they split the water into hydrogen and oxygen using solar energy, hence solar foods. Now, they combine all these ingredients and they put some microbes and some minerals and so on in there and they grow what's called biomass. Now, people are thinking, what's biomass? Well, if you know Vegemite, you know biomass. That's just yeast that's been turned into a black infamous paste, right? But you don't have to do that. You can grow microbes and you can turn them and structure them into the same thing as you would a soy protein or something like that. And these guys are putting their first factory together, Factory 01, which will make thousands of tonnes of their product called Solain, which has been approved in Singapore for sale. So this is coming to the market this year in 2024, and we'll see lots of different products made with that, everything from alternative protein meat products to dairy products to all sorts of things. Wow. And I've seen pictures. So Solain is a powder. It looks yellow. Do you know what it? Yep. Do you know what it tastes like? What does thin air? No, taste like? unfortunately not. <laughs> unfortunately not, because I'd have to go all the way to Singapore and wait till someone did something. Yeah. But um, they are doing products over there in, in in Singapore with it to prove the concept. And the big thing about this, Matt, and think about this in an Australian context, it doesn't need arable land or virtually any fresh water. So what parts of Australia have we got? that you could set up massive solar farms with access to large amounts of solar energy and grow food without arable land or fresh water. And I wonder if the thin air of the desert tastes different to the thin air of the Daintree (laughs) rainforest. It blows my mind a bit, this stuff, yeah. I think you're talking about the terroir, isn't it? As they say in wine, what is the terroir of the, you know, the, the air of the, of the, of the, you know, the, the Mount Lofty Ranges versus um, Toowoomba? I mean, yeah, well, I mean, we see water, we see air? bottled water getting described in, yep. in all different ways. Wow. Who knows, Matt? Wow. Who knows? If you're tuning in, this is the Country Hour, and we are speaking to Tony Hunter, who is a food futurist. What could 2024 hold for our food? Our beverages. Tony has sent us a wonderful list of of trends that are emerging. And uh, if uh, my Gen Alphas in the household ask for more mycoproteins in their diet, what on earth would they be talking about? (laughs) Well, some people may know the UK product corn, Q-U-O-R-N, which is basically made from fungi. As we know, mushrooms are fungi. Under the ground, you have the mycelium, and a lot of fungi don't grow with the fruiting bodies we call mushrooms. They grow, if you like, as mycelium, and you can structure that mycelium to make alternative protein products. So there's a few companies around. Um, one is called Riser, uh, a product called Riser from the Better Meat Company over in the US. They're actually adding that to chicken nuggets um, with Purdue, a huge chicken manufacturer over in the in the US. So 
that advantage of that product is it grows so fast. Mm. I mean, you could say to me today, Tony, um, I would like a cow's worth of mycoprotein, please. I'd look at my watch and go, do it, Matt, come back Saturday morning and I'll get the chainsaw out and cut you out a piece and put it in the back of the ute and you can take it home with you. So that's how quickly you can grow protein. That's food futurist Tony Hunter speaking with Matt Brand. I'll catch you online tomorrow. It's one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.